The reading today is from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and it can be found on chapter page 5 of your bulletin. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightened, frightening you with my letters. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me as we pray? Oh Jesus, we know you're exalted in heaven, you're resurrected, but you are present here by your spirit. And uh, you tell us to seek you with all our heart and we'll be found. We'll be found by you. Would you open our hearts? Open our minds. We pray that uh, every one of us would come away from this room knowing you. And we ask it because of who you are. In Christ's name. Amen. Well, in the great state of Virginia, which is just over the river, um, there are many great battlefields. Anybody visited the battlefields in Virginia? A few of you? Yeah. Um, Antietam, Bull Run 1, Bull Run 2, Right, Fredericksburg, all these things. In fact, uh, I learned this week that the National Archives records that the most battles fought in any state were in Virginia. 123. Can you believe that? 123 battles, three times more than number two, which is Tennessee. That's a lot of battles. And then... I began thinking about our passage that has all this battle imagery. And church history evidences lots and lots of spiritual battles. Lots of them. You can study about them. Maybe it was the battle for the person of God, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Or the battle for grace with Augustine and Pelagius. The battle about who the person of Jesus is or what his cross meant. All these different battles. I think today we're uneasy in the church with this image 
of battling. Now, it may be because you've witnessed trivial battles, right? Battles that shouldn't have been fought within the church. In fact, maybe your church divided when you were younger because people were fighting over things that you really didn't need to fight over. Or maybe it's because you've seen the church just wholesale jump into culture wars and battle. And so I think the tendency, probably in our moment in time, is to go AWOL. To just say, well, you know, Jesus preached love, he preached grace, and I'm just not going to battle. But the passage reminds us today that there are some things that are worth fighting for. And anybody that follows Jesus has to be willing to fight for them. Because it's nothing short than fighting for the gospel of grace, the gospel of God, the hope of God, the love of God. So it wasn't uncommon at the time of writing this that philosophers would use battle imagery to talk about rivaling uh, their opponents. And so the Apostle Paul takes up this language But what's different about this is typically when Paul uses battle imagery, he does it to talk about uh, the victorious Christian life over against spiritual forces that you fight against. But here he takes up the image to talk about his opponents at the Corinth church. The Corinthian church, false teachers and opponents that have been basically attacking who he was in the gospel. And as you hear this thing read, I think it's easy to think, well, isn't Paul being sort of trivial? Isn't he just being defensive? But the deeper you get into the passage, you see that what he's fighting about is the authority of the message of the gospel and the authority of the meaning of the gospel. The message of the gospel and the meaning of the gospel. And I want to say that that's something worth fighting for. So let's look at that together. First of all, the authority of the message of the gospel. Now, as you read or heard those, that small snippet, it might be easy at times to think, well, Paul talks a lot about its authority. Is he sort of on a power trip here? You know, is it really, you know, he is just someone that has to assert himself. He likes control. He cares too much about his reputation. But I would say there's enough evidence, even in the little passage we've got, to see that his motives are deeper than that. First of all, he says things like, you know, I don't desire to intimidate you. I don't desire to frighten you. I don't desire to tear you down, but to build you up. And then, second of all, he evidences even compassion and grace for his opponents. There's a story in uh, 2 Samuel about um, King David. And King David is going through a small town with his uh, elite soldiers. And this guy pops up on a hill and he begins to curse the king of Israel. Great David, King David, he begins to curse him, and he not only curses him, he throws rocks at him. 
And of course, you know, David's elite, mighty men just look at him and say, you want us to cut his head off? You know, we, we can do that. And David instead goes, no, you know, it could be that God ultimately is, you know, leading him for some reason to say this, and we'll find out in the end. There's this ability to even be gracious toward your opponent. And what I'm getting at here is uh, this point, that when you engage in battle, the question you're always asking yourself is, am I doing this out of the right motives? Am I doing this in the right spirit? How do I know I'm being led by God or being led by the enemy of God? Well, there's certain things, right? I mentioned one, not the building up, but another one is, can I have compassion even for my enemy? And Paul will say, you know, uh, he longs to show leniencies, essentially saying, Paul was well aware of the, th the authority that God gave him. And it was a lot of authority. God gave the apostles a lot of authority. We'll get into why and what that means in a second. But he was well aware. He wasn't intimidated. It was sort of like, you know, a, a, you know, a great superhero dealing with just this sort of scrawny, irritating, annoying, evil person. In a sense, they're just going, please don't make me come there and show you the strength of God. Please don't do that. He desires to show leniency. He says, I beg you even. But the third thing I would say is in the battle, if you're going to battle well, you really have to have a sense of what battles to fight. This is, this is not an easy thing. How do you know which battles, which hills to die on, right? As we would say it. When uh, the Nazis were rising to power, there were some leaders that were naive about their intentions, and so appeasement. But there were some leaders that perceived where this was going early on. They could see what was at stake. So what does Paul see that's at stake here? False teachers and opponents. It may seem like, why are you even bothered with them if you have all this authority? Because he understood something great was at stake. And it was this. It was the Corinthians knowing God and knowing Christ. That was what was at stake. That's what he perceived. So, how is that? Well, we're coming into an election season, right? And one of the strategies you see over and over is if you can discredit the messenger, you can discredit the message. And so these opponents of Paul's begin by discrediting him. Um, they're discrediting the importance of the messenger, and it would seem on the surface that Paul is most concerned about that. But you could read his wider writings and even here to see what he's really concerned about is if you discredit the messenger, they're going to discredit the gospel that I bring. So, the Corinthians, uh, well, I'm, I'm going to wait on that. When you see Paul respond to their attacks and critiques, it's interesting what he doesn't rely upon, what he doesn't argue about. 
He doesn't say, listen, you better stop that because I'm really gifted. I'm mega gifted. Uh, I've got a lot of credentials. He doesn't appeal to his moral character, his track record that he had planted a bunch of churches. He doesn't go through all that different stuff. The, the place he goes is he talks about his sentness. S-E-N-T, his sentness. And we find this with the apostles as well. We recognize, in fact, the definition of apostle is sent one. Someone that has been sent by Jesus. We recognize sending authority, don't we? So, you know, you may be a soldier and you don't like your commander. You think they're inept. You think that they're, you know, incompetent. You think they don't understand, but what? But they've been sent. So, so you're going to obey them. They've been sent. Or maybe as a parent, right? At some point, your teenager looks at you and goes, why can't you be more like so-and-so's parents? Maybe you said that to your parents. Why can't you be like so-and-so's father or so-and-so's mother? And you're like, well, I'm the one you got, right? I'm the one God gave you. There's an authority to sentness. Paul's ultimate confidence in the apostles' ultimate confidence is that. Now, at the end of the Gospel of John, after Jesus has died on the cross and rose, he appears to the apostles, and listen to what he says. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. That's a lot of authority. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. He sends them and he gives them authority which belongs to him. They're his agents and servants. This sentness has everything to do with why the message has credibility. And this is a very relevant point today. Um, it's not, I think, uncommon for people to consider the Bible and to say, well, you know, after all, it was written by men, flawed men. Um, it was written by human beings, right? It was written by, and so there's an idea that, you know, Jesus' words have this authority, but when you get to the Hebrew scriptures, well, they have some because of tradition, but the letters of those that came afterward, were there, they're on a different level of authority. But Jesus didn't look at it that way. Jesus didn't look at it that way. First of all, when we come to the Old Testament, the Sermon on the Mount, what does he say? The entire Hebrew Scriptures, I came to fulfill even the smallest pen stroke or period. Right? The authority of the prophets and the law and what came before him. And then Jesus tells us, tells his disciples, I have more to teach, but it's going to come later. After the Holy Spirit comes. So Jesus dies, he rises, he had chosen 
these people he would send, and then he spends 40 days teaching them. It was no surprise Jesus, uh, to Jesus that there would be letters after his Gospels. It wasn't plan B that God was going to use human agents to, finish, to write the Bible. It was never plan B. It was God's plan A. What's the point? Because the authority of the gospel has everything to do with the credibility of the messengers. Right? If you discredit the messenger, you're going to miss out on the power of the gospel. And so, I would say, um, for each of us, maybe you're here and you're, you know, maybe you've had some of those very questions about um, just what about the Bible I can really take seriously? What of it would have authority into my life? All of us have those questions, and, and I would urge you not to just sit passively in your skepticism. I would urge you not to just sort of say, the culture has this particular view of authority, so I will. Because in a sense, it's to sort of adopt that same strategy of the Corinthian opponents, right? We want to be mindful of the messengers. But all of this really is to set up the meaning of the message. And that's where I want to take us to close here. It's been said that, you know, the medium is the message. The medium is the message. And the opposite's true. So um, when I was, 20 years ago, when I was uh, showing up here uh, to organize and help with the church plant, we had to raise money. And, um, and the region of churches in our area is called a presbytery, the DMV. And so I was going to the first presbytery meeting, and it, you know the, the, the folks that we were hoping first would support the church plant would be the churches around here. And so I went, you know, there. I went to rent a car, and um, you know, I show up, and I, you know, I think I had some sort of nondescript comp, whatever it was. And they were like, "We don't have that car, but you know, we can upgrade you." And I was like, "Okay, whatever." And I get out, and it's this red convertible. And I was like, I was like, cool, you know, this is, you know, hey, God is smiling on me. Until I pulled into the parking lot of Presbytery. And I was like, you know, you could see all the average pastor doll pastor cars. And then here, this new church planner that needs to raise money steps out of this like convertible, right? Please show us money. The medium and the message, right? It wasn't where it needed to be. Uh, we see this in social media, right? The fact that uh, the message in Twitter is limited to a certain amount of characters, right? The medium's going to affect the message. You get the point. So the message for years had been proclaimed that the Messiah was going to come. And it was really twofold part of this message. Listen to this first part, because you need to put yourself in the ears of those that were there in the first century awaiting the Messiah. What were they looking for? One part of the message was this. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came like one a son of man. 
And he came to the Ancient of Days, that's God, and was presented before him. And to him the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's part one of who they're expecting. Part two, the other side, were things like the prophet Isaiah that said, my servant will come. There'll be no beauty or majesty to which attracts him. He'll be rejected. He'll be smitten. He'll be despised. He'll come riding a donkey, an animal of peace, not a war horse. This whole side of the suffering and humiliation of the Messiah. So, here's the interesting thing. By far... By far, the majority, even those that loved and followed Jesus, were expecting number one and not number two. Why is that? Why is that? Why were they drawn to the first, and why, why was the, the, the part of the second sort of passed over? You see a similar thing in the Corinthian church. Uh, the attack that the Corinthians had upon Paul was that he was unimpressive, that he acted like he was a really good and big leader far away, but when he showed up, he was passive and he didn't really uh, push into things. He wasn't sophisticated. And where were those values coming from? Well, they were coming from Corinth. That was the description of a Corinthian leader, a Corinthian superman. And the false teachers were critiquing, that's not Paul, right? That's not who we have here. And yet Paul seems defeated by boasting in his weakness, boasting in his lack of ability to speak. Why? Because he understood that the medium had everything to do with the message. He understood it wasn't just, it's the incarnation of the gospel mission in weakness that gives the gospel power. There was a lot at stake. The very reason that they were critiquing him in the end was because they were critiquing the gospel and what it means. He's destroying strongholds, the same stronghold that exists today in Washington, D.C., in our hearts and in this city. That stronghold. When I uh, went to do campus ministry up at Harvard, um, I was finishing up my last semester at seminary. And by this time I knew, okay, this is where I'm going to be sent. You know, I, I didn't... Uh, yeah, so I didn't say, isn't it obvious? <laughs> you know, right? The guy that went to Berkeley College of Music, right? So um, anyway, and, when I, and as I, I can't remember if I shared this or not, but I was just sharing it with one of my daughters, I think. So that last semester came up, and there was an elective that was being offered and at Covenant Seminary, and it was logic. And I thought, I need to take this class because 
I don't know, I'm, I'm, this is where I'm going. It was the lowest grade I ever got in seminary. She gave me a C plus as a gift because I, I studied more of that class than I did on any of the other classes I had. And so I show up to Harvard, and as I'm doing ministry, I'm doing sort of everything I can to hide my lineage or lack of credibility. Sort of downplay, you know, where, where'd you go to college? Just cross the river, you know. Uh, you know, you know, what to, all these different things, studying, you know, all these complicated, and, and by the way, in the end, you know, I was, I was pastoring 18 and 19-year-olds, 20, you know, they weren't like, Glenn, you know, can you talk to me about Foucault? They were like, you know, I, gee, I, I'd like to be able to date someone if I can, but, you know, my, my head was somewhere else, right? It was this sort of like, this is, uh, you know, I'm going to be saved the medium is going to be shiny. And, uh, you know, even before, this is really, I didn't plan to share this because it's more embarrassing, but, you know, uh, to be on campus officially, you know, you needed to be like a chaplain. And, you know, uh, you know and so uh, I remember, you know, when I was sort of applying for that, walking through the bookstore thing, and there was all this stuff, like, you know, there were the memo pad that said Harvard, the blank pad, and a pen, and I was sort of like, yeah, soon I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy some of that stuff. You know, some attachment to the great name, right? So, three years in, uh, a pastor shows up, head pastor, and um, in his interview... And I really wanted this guy to get it. We clicked and have always clicked since then. His name is Rick Downs. And uh, in his interview, Rick is sitting there, and they're asking him questions, and he just says, listen, I am not... And by the way, this church is located smack dab between MIT and Harvard. Smack dab. And he goes, um, he goes listen, I'm not an academic. And I was like, don't say that. Play, but don't say that, Rick. And then later, this was the, the aha moment for me. He was making some point in a sermon, and he said, you know, and that's coming from a guy that went to Florida State, measured in phys ed, and whose favorite movie is Ghostbusters. <laughs> it horrified me. But, you know, I saw what he was doing. Here he is standing before the great, right, intellectual, and he's just like, this is the gospel. It's weakness, it's foolishness. That's exactly what that congregation, exactly what I needed. I'm so glad I had a little of that before I came here, because, right, all of us are drawn to the idols of the place we go. But when we do that, all of our lives are preaching some sort of message. Your life is preaching a message, and at the heart of the message is, this is how I will be saved. This is how I will be saved. So, you know, think about the leaders you idolize. Think about the dreams you have. Think about the mentors you that, that That sort of thing, you know, what you're doing. What sort of messenger do you want to be to Washington, D.C.? or to the world, or to your parents. So, 
yesterday, I need to wrap this up, but, um, you know, yesterday we saw the Barbie movie. And, uh, and yes, we dressed up. And uh, actually, Isabel and Meg were, you know, I, I was just, Ken, we could talk about Ken. That whole insight, if, if you see the movie, the whole insight on Ken is really, I played with G.I. Joes. Maybe I was stereotypical, but Ken was like arm candy, right? Ken was like had no purpose, and they kind of bring that out. Um, so I dressed like Ken. And uh, I was arm candy. And uh, old candy, like candy you would have had a long time ago. So, um, but you know, the way it starts, I'm not ruining it, the way it starts is you got all these girls on this beach playing with baby dolls. Playing with baby dolls, right? Because before dolls were only, dolls were just this idea of playing as a mother. You'd mother a baby. Then all of a sudden there's this like invasion thing from outer space and this humongous Barbie that just stands there. And one of the themes they say is, you know, Barbie was intended to remind women that, you know, you can do anything. There was this Barbie and that Barbie and Barbie doctor and Barbie this and Barbie that to empower. But surprisingly, that messenger communicated a message that later kind of backfired, right? People feeling like that's who I need to be. And I'll stop there because that's part of the interesting thing about the movie. Paul says, I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Do you see what he's saying there? He goes straight for the gospel. Meekness and gentleness was the one way that Jesus described himself. He's saying this lion of Judah that you want was the lamb of God who came in great weakness. And he only came... Why did he come? You know, imagine, imagine the first shepherds, they hear the news, maybe they had that first Daniel 7 in their mind. Or imagine Peter, Andrew says, the Messiah's come. All of them have that great leader thing, and they, you know, they run there. Him? That? I don't, I don't think we can even grasp how shocking it It's the same gospel today. God has to, to shock us with the fact that he, he came for the lowly. You, you are the lowly. He came for the ignoble. You are the ignoble. He came for sinners 70 times 7. He came for, right? He came for those people. That's why he identified. That's why he came in flesh. That's why it had to be incarnation and not just, I'm going to shout from heaven, this is the gospel. It had to come that way. He identifies with sinners to the point of death and judgment so he can save them and they can identify with him. This is the only gospel there is. And it's the gospel that I'm, I'm so glad that we are the lowly. We're, we're all on this journey, right? It's a lifetime. It's a lifetime of being like, am I still, am I still trying to be that shiny messenger? Because the good news is, 
that there is one person attracted to the weak and the needy and the sinful. One leader. And he's the God-man. The times when you feel like another failure in this city, or in your relationship, or like a nobody, and by the way, if we commit to this way, it's going to mean a certain thing. It's going to mean a commitment to being unimpressive at parties, feeling like you're no one at the gala, someone coming up and going, hey, what do you do? And you go, well, you know. If we commit to it, it's going to be that. But man, when you're in that place, know that you are irresistible to Jesus. Irresistible to him. The messenger and the message, that's worth fighting for. Let's demolish strongholds. That's what what we're doing here. That's what we've been doing. Gospel of grace trying to demolish these strongholds in our heart. And hopefully we bring that incarnation into the city and people go, some, many will disdain it. Many will disdain it. But the hungry and thirsty will come and go, I, I want to know about this. Let's pray. We thank you for this gospel, Lord. We thank you for the word of it that you've preserved. Thank you, Jesus, the way you just uh, you sit at the center of it. And we pray you would do your work. In Christ's name, amen.